0: So today's scripture reading will be from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anian near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. He has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Has been reading God's infallible, sufficient Word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. How are you guys doing? Am I using the right mic? Is this the right, one or is it this one? Good to go. Cool. Well, I don't think that anything I could say would be better than what's already been said this morning. So I feel like I should just invite you guys up to, to preach, right? Um, hey, my name is Dylan. If we haven't met before, I know I'm kind of a new face around here, um, and I'm just honored and privileged to be able to to share the Word this morning. Um, And I'm going to be just candid and upfront and honest with you all that I haven't done this in quite a long time, so I'm a little anxious and a little nervous, so I'd appreciate your prayers this morning, kind of as we dig in. Um, And before we do, let's just, let's pray really quickly and just invite Jesus to speak, if that's all right. Um, Lord Jesus, God, we believe that you are working, we believe that you are speaking, we believe that your words are sufficient and good and trustworthy. Lord, I pray this morning that you would just be here, be present with us, that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray in this moment that you would shine greater than I do, that you would increase, I would decrease. People see you clearly and not see me, not hear me, not hear my words or anything that I have to say, but they are pointed towards you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Speak now, Lord Jesus. Amen. So there is a uh, a well-known artist and philanthropist, storyteller, entrepreneur, philosopher, I would argue theologian as well named Dolly Parton. Um I'm a huge fan of Dolly Parton. Um, I don't know if many of y'all knew that, but I I love her. I think she's an incredible songwriter, an incredible storyteller. She also does a ton of amazing philanthropic endeavors, and she's just all around a a cultural icon. And, you know, sometimes I go down these rabbit trails when I'm working because I work remotely, and I'll have YouTube up or a podcast up or something on my second monitor. And I found myself a while back watching these documentaries on the life and career of, of Dolly Parton. And I was amazed by, by some of the things she's been through. She has an absolutely incredible story that I think anyone should hear. It's it's really encouraging and really inspiring, honestly. But I, I found an interview um, on a talk show based out of the UK where she was doing kind of a retrospective on her career, which has been absolutely incredible and astounding. And she was asked several different questions, but but one of the questions that she was asked was about her song, I Will Always Love You. Now, if you're like me and you didn't know until fairly recently that that is actually originally a Dolly Parton song and not a Whitney Houston song, there's your fun fact for the day. But it was this very issue that she was actually being asked about. Because many people, if you know that song, I Will Always Love You, you you immediately think of the Whitney Houston rendition of it and not necessarily the original recording done by Dolly back in the 70s, I believe. And so the the host was asking her, what was it like to to hear that song, to to experience Whitney Houston's version for the first time? And, And Dolly, much like Dolly does, didn't answer the question as much as she told a story. And she told a story about remembering the time that she heard that song for the very first time, driving in her car back from the studio in Nashville to her home in Brentwood, and... She said, you know, when it first came on, I could, I could hear a familiarity there. There was a sense that, like, oh, I know this song. Wait, this is my song. And then Whitney Houston came in with that iconic belting chorus that Dale's going to sing a line for us really quick, right? Thank you, Randy. Perfect. Just like that. So Dolly heard that, and she was driving her car, and she said, you know, I was, I was moved to tears. I was so emotional that I had to actually pull my car off the side of the road to avoid crashing because I could not see from the tears and the mascara running into my eyes. And so she pulled over to the side of the road and she she just sat and she just listened to this other woman sing her song so powerfully. And she said, and I quote, that that was one of the proudest moments of my career. I think that's a a lot coming from Dolly Parton, right? Because her career is nothing short of amazing. She's one of the top-selling country artists of all time. She has sung on some of the biggest stages in the world, has platinum records. She has not one but two themed dinner theaters that bear her name. She's got an incredible philanthropic endeavor where she sends books to children for free every month for the first five years of their life in an effort to increase children's literacy numbers. And to top all of that off, She has a theme park named after her, which as far as having a theme park named after you goes, it's like Dolly Parton and Walt Disney, and that's really it. So that's good company. That's a a pretty good career. I think all of us would be able to agree on that. But looking back over all of that, Dolly recalls one of the proudest moments of her career being someone else singing a song she wrote, in her words, better than she ever could. That's just not normal, and I think we can all agree that that is not a commonplace uh, way to, to mark your achievement or mark your success based on how other people do things you do better than you do, right? Like LeBron James isn't looking back at his career saying, you know, the proudest moment of my career was when Dirk Nowitzki beat me in the 2011 NBA Finals, uh, Bill Gates is not looking back at his career, you know, saying, you know, the proudest moment in my career was when Steve Jobs released a better computer than I ever could. <laughs> that's, that's really, that's going to be the thing that's divisive this morning, really? Okay, we're <laughs> off to a great start, off to a great start. But this is not common in today's culture, because I truly believe that we do live in a society that is very, very self-obsessed. We, we value our brand, our personal identity. We value our own agendas highly than, more highly than just about anything else. And, and I think there's some statistics that can help us see that as well. There was one study I found that suggested that up to a third of children between the ages of 8 and 12 years old want to be a famous YouTuber when they grow up. Now, if you're familiar with the YouTube meta at all, You have to build a brand around your personality, and that's how you get success on YouTube. So what they're saying is that a third of children between the ages of 8 and 12 want to be a personality, a celebrity, an influencer in that regard on YouTube. That number actually goes up if we broaden that age age demographic a little bit. A study by Bloomberg found that 86% of young Americans want to be a social media influencer. 86%. Of young Americans want to be a social media influencer. Now, these are staggering numbers, I, I think, that, that so many people want their career, they want what they are known as to be themselves, right? Like they want to build a brand, build an identity, be able to sell things based on their personality and their own ambition. But lest you think that the church is immune to this, right, lest you think that this is just strictly a secular problem or just a young problem, it's not, I would encourage you if you are on Instagram to go look at an account called Preachers and Sneakers if you haven't seen it before, and you will quickly find a long list of pastors whose desire is more clear that they want to be an influencer or celebrity than a pastor, And this isn't just West Coast Hollywood Christianity either, you know, where Justin Bieber is attending your church or Kanye if he's not going off the rails that week. No, this isn't just kind of a West Coast problem. I think this affects every area of our life. I mean, turn on your favorite, your preferred news station and you'll quickly find somebody that bears the title of reverend using their authority as a spiritual influencer to leverage their political ambition and agenda. We live in a society that values ambition, agenda, and influence above anything else. That, that, I would argue that at least. But I don't want you to hear me this morning and think that I'm strictly kind of ragging on today and that I want to take us back to the golden age and, you know, before all of this was a problem because this has been a problem since the dawn of time. Wars have been fought over whose face would be on a coin. People groups have been colonized, exploited, and sold into slavery in the name of a king, oftentimes a king that claimed divine authority to rule. People have been exploited in today's society and since the dawn of time in the name of power, authority, influence, and agenda. Because the reality is that the world screams at us that our name is the most important name in the world. The world screams at us daily that we need to make a name for ourselves, that we must be remembered, that we must build something great to leave a legacy behind so that people know us. But I think the reality is actually that if we dig into our text today, if we dig into the Gospels and the life and the teachings and the work of Jesus, we find a name that is more worthy of fame and honor and recognition and notoriety than our own. Because this question of influence and name and agenda is really central, and it's at the heart of this passage today. Just a little bit of context as we kind of dig in this morning. We get in the first part of this text um, a setup where we see that John the Baptist, the guy who, or John the Baptizer, if you will, who's known um, as somebody who built his ministry around a baptism of repentance, He's still doing his thing out in the the area of Judah, right? But Jesus, who's also recently come onto the scene, is beginning to do the same sort of ministry. We read that Jesus and his followers are also baptizing people. Now, we don't know exactly where these locations would be on a map today, but most scholars would agree that they would be within relative walking distance, maybe a couple hours up to a day away from each other, close enough that word can get around that John's baptizing over here, and Jesus is baptizing over here. So at some point, and and just a little note, I'm reading from the NIV. I know we read from the ESV earlier, but I'm a child of 2000s youth groups, so the NIV is just kind of in my blood. Um, So it might be a little different than your translation, but we read in verse 25 that an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, that's not an argument around baptism like we're probably used to, right? They're not sitting around saying, hey, do you guys baptize infants or are you believers baptism? Like, is this baptism for forgiveness of sins or is this kind of like a covenantal thing? Like, do I need to be baptized again because I was baptized as a baby? Like, I don't know. Ask Dale or Randy. They'd be happy to answer all those questions for you. But this isn't that kind of argument. In a Jewish culture in the first century, ceremonial washing, or what we now know as baptism, was a way to ritually purify yourself before going into the presence of God. That is primarily what a Jewish audience would have understood baptism to mean. However, when John shows up on the scene and he begins baptizing people, he's doing something a little different in that he's calling people to be baptized for the repentance of sin. And then on top of all of that, John proclaims that Jesus is going to do an even different baptism. He says, I baptize with water, but one is coming that is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So I can imagine that the argument is really revolving around these three different expressions of baptism and maybe which one is superior, which one is preferred, what they should be participating in. But what we do know is that at some point, the argument develops into a comparison between what John is doing and what Jesus is doing. Is doing, and we know that because in verse 26 it says they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Now, emphasis is lost when you're just reading text, right? But I think it's it's pretty clear here what they're doing is going to him and say, Hey, hey, John, uh, you remember that guy that came to you a while back? You know, the one that you baptized. Well, he I mean, he's doing the same thing you're doing now and everyone's leaving us and going over to where he is. So it becomes a question of competition, of influence, of Jesus's large crowds that he's drawing in that we read in other places of the gospel are up to 5,000 men not including women and children, and more than likely John's waning crowds. And this isn't a this isn't unknown to us either. I think it's very easy for us in uh, the modern world, especially if you're involved in a church, to to fall into the same kind of trap of comparison, to look at the church down the road that's building a multi-million dollar facility that's drawing in thousands of people and start to question, you know, are we doing it right? I think we can learn a lot from John's response here because I do believe that it's incredibly radical, not just then, then, but also today. Verse 27 To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. So the first thing John does is make two points, two counterpoints to this issue of comparison and influence and all of that. He says, first off, I need you to understand that whatever ministry I have wasn't mine to begin with. It was given from God. It was given from God. And I can't help but wonder what the state of the American church would look like if we stopped seeing ministry as something that we build in order to make our name greater. But we started seeing it as something to steward that's given to us by God that we're to carefully and prayerfully walk out rather than trying to build it into some grand, ambitious empire. He says a second thing, though. You yourselves can testify that I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. John makes it crystal clear that, hey, the point of all of this, everything I was doing was not to make myself famous. It was not to build a platform for myself. It was to point out the one who was to come. We read that in Isaiah earlier in our call to worship. Those are the very words that John declared. He said, I am a voice in the wilderness crying, make straight the way of the Lord. It says very clearly, my job is simply to point people to Jesus. The good news is that that is also our job. So if you ever wonder as a Christian, what am I supposed to do? What am I called to do? I, I used to work in college ministry, and that was probably the number one issue that I would talk with college students about, was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what God's will is for my life. This is God's will for your life, that you would point people to Jesus. I would argue that it doesn't necessarily matter how you do that, right? That it doesn't matter if you are doing that on the mission field or working on staff at a church or if you're answering phones at at, uh, uh, a sales center or, or whatever you're doing. The point of everything in our existence as followers of Christ is to point people to Jesus, And I think if we can focus in on that, rather than getting lost and kind of sucked into the particulars of how we do that, of when we do that, and where we do that, if we just keep it simple and point people to Jesus, I really think our pride would fall to the wayside and we could do what C.S. Lewis said and we could play the great parts without pride and the small parts without shame. I truly, truly believe that. But John doesn't stop there. He continues and he tells this beautiful, this beautiful anecdote about a wedding, that the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and that the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. Um, My my sister and her husband are actually here this morning and I had the privilege of officiating their wedding a few years ago And it was one of the most joyful experiences of my life watching my little sister get married and the reality was that day was not about me I think any of us who have been to a wedding Of someone that we love dearly can attest that that day is not about us And that's actually the most beautiful part of it. Some of y'all try to make it about y'all, but that's another Conversation But there's something joyful about being able to celebrate that kind of event of someone that you love. And that's the very heart of what John is getting at here, that, hey, the wedding has arrived. The groom has arrived to take his bride. This is is language that is all throughout the Old Testament and continues on throughout the New Testament, that Christ is the groom, that his church is the bride, and that he has come to prepare the bride, and later he is going to come back and take the bride, and there will be a marriage of the Lamb. This beautiful imagery that I do believe John is referring to here, and he wants us to find joy in that. He finds joy in allowing the groom to, his wedding day. So, what's so countercultural about John's response here, about his, his kind of waning ministry, about Jesus' rapidly growing ministry, doing the exact same thing he was doing? We know that some of John's followers left John to go follow Jesus. All of this, this is not normal in today's context at all, like this does not fall into church growth strategy or into marketing strategy or anything, that you would be happy and joyful for people to leave what you're doing and go to someone else. But he finds joy in that. But then, then, he says one thing that I, re- I really want us to focus in on today. Because he doesn't just stop there. In verse 30, he says, He must become greater, and I must become less. John's response is not just, Well, you know, this isn't my job. Like, I'm supposed to just point him out. John's response isn't just that I'm joyful about it, too. It's that it has to be this way. He must become greater. Where he must increase, I must decrease. In the kingdom of God, we see a juxtaposition against the kingdom of this world where we're told that we must make a name for ourselves, that we must have ambition, that we must have a five-year plan, that we must achieve certain career goals, or we must build a large ministry, or we must, must, must do X, Y, Z. In the kingdom of God, we see the only must we have is that Jesus should become greater and we should become less. That is how it has to be and that stands in a stark contrast to the kingdom of this world and that is the beauty of the kingdom of God is that it takes everything that we have funneled into our brain every single day and it flips it upside down and shows us a new reality that we're to walk out. And that's what John is getting at here, that he understands that this king has arrived, that the groom has arrived, that there's a new creation that is beginning to spread, that there's a new kingdom that is being proclaimed, and there's a new reality. There's a new reality that demands submission to a new king. But he finds joy in that submission. And that's, that's really, for the rest of our time this morning, what I, what I want us to focus in on is, look, if you are a believer, that means we bend the knee to Christ as King and Lord above all else, above our own ambition, above our own agenda, above what we think the Bible should say, above how we think our life should go, above everything else, we bend the knee to Christ as king. So the question I want to ask this morning is how do we do that joyfully? Because when confronted with that choice to bend the knee to Christ, we really have two options here. We can dig our heels in. We can fight. We can throw tantrums. We can claw our way towards every inch of false kingdom that we think we're entitled to. Or we can joyfully surrender and submit to Jesus as Lord. But that's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. I will will just be very honest with you guys. That is hard for me. That's very hard for me. Like Johan prayed earlier, like waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. I want to be all those things because it means I'm in control of my little sphere of influence, of my life, of what's going on around me. And to submit to someone else means I am relinquishing control of my own life to somebody else. And that is the most terrifying thing I think I've ever encountered in my entire life. But I want to be joyful in that. I think that's part of the Christian life is learning not to take up our cross begrudgingly, but to take it up joyfully, worshiping all the way. So how do, how do we do that? How do we do that? I think if we look at the rest of the text that we're going to find a few things that can help us just kind of tangibly lock on to joy in that. Verse 31 says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Now, little little just side note here. We're not sure exactly who's saying this here, right? It could be John the baptizer. A lot of scholars actually believe this is John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, kind of summing up everything that we've been reading in the third chapter of John already. We've been studying that for a couple weeks now. But the main point of this little section here is this, that Christ is greater than us. That he is from above, we are from below, right? And the one who is from the above is above all. So how do we find joy in submission to Christ? Well, we we have to trust that he is greater. We have to trust that he is from above all. If we skip down to verse 33, we see that whoever accepted it has certified that God is truthful. This testimony that Jesus came and proclaimed, this kingdom that he preached about, the things he taught and the things he did. Whoever has believed that has certified that God is truthful. God is truthful. That that is, I think, crucial in finding joy in submission is that we have to trust that God is truthful. You've probably, my, my guess would be that everyone in this room has at one point worked for somebody who was not very truthful. Has held a job where your boss or has worked with a coworker or somebody, right? Maybe a family member or a friend. I hope they're not a friend if they're not truthful, but that you've encountered somebody on a deeper level who is dishonest, disloyal, perpetually lying, manipulative. You fill in the blank there. Can you joyfully submit yourself to somebody that you know is not going to be honest with you? I don't, I don't believe so. At least I don't. Maybe, maybe y'all are more holy than me and you find that a little easier, but I have a difficult time with that. If I'm going to submit myself to somebody, I need to know that they're going to be honest with me. I think that's the beauty of Christ here is that we know he is truthful and trustworthy and I can, I can bank on that. I can put my trust in him and joyfully submit to him knowing he is always truthful with me now that truth may not always look like what I want it to look like that truth might be difficult to swallow that truth is certainly going to hurt it sometimes as it chisels away my pride and my sin and my vanity but it is truthful and that is the kind of person I can willingly and joyfully submit myself to but then above all of this Above all of this, if we were to go back, if we were to go back a couple weeks to John's conversation with Nicodemus, we would read the most famous verse in the Bible from the same chapter, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And those same words, are echoed here at the end of the chapter that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We have eternal life in Christ because of love. Because of His perfect, holy, radical, self-giving love. How do we joyfully submit to Christ? How do we joyfully submit to him during a dark night of the soul? Or when we are going through seasons of doubt or questioning or fear or uncertainty or anxiety, we lean on the unfailing love of Christ. That he would love love me, love you, so much that he would condescend Take on human flesh, become like us with back pain and toothaches and friends that would hurt him and hunger pains and live our experience to then lay down his life not only willingly but we read in scripture that he joyfully endured the cross for us that he would lay down his life for us as a sacrifice to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness into his new kingdom of light. I really think that if we can understand and trust in the love of Christ that would joyfully lay down his life for us, I think at that point it becomes a lot easier to joyfully lay down ours for his I think it's that new reality that helps us trust him, that helps us lay down our life, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, that helps us submit our agendas, our our preferred ways of life to him. Because submitting to Christ is very difficult. It's very, very difficult because it does affect every single aspect of our lives. It will radically change the way you handle your finances. It'll radically uh, change the way that you handle conflict or relationships. It should radically impact and change the way you vote and participate in politics and society and culture. It should radically change the content that you consume and the kind of person that you are. That kind of radical change is very 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 difficult if we're not trusting in the person of Jesus because there's one there's one part of this section that I skipped over a little bit it's that John the apostle goes out of his way to make sure that we know in verse 24 that John says all of this before he was put into prison John, the baptizer's story, ultimately ends with him being thrown into prison for proclaiming, really, for rejecting sin and calling out authority and abuse and power, calling people to repentance, and ultimately he is killed for it. He is killed for proclaiming the new way of the kingdom of God. So how, how did John joyfully submit himself to Jesus in this? Even, un, even unto death. I, I truly believe that he was able to look past his own pride, to look past his own ambition and the things that he desired and his own personal agenda because he knew the person of Christ. He knew the one who was demanding his submission. And we see that echoed in his words that he said, I'm not even worthy to, to lace his sandals. He knew Jesus deeply and intimately. That is how we joyfully surrender and submit to Christ as Lord. We have to know him personally, and deeply, and intimately by trusting that he is greater than us, by trusting that he's truthful and by trusting that he loves us. That is the kind of leader worth following. That is the kind of king worth submitting to. That is the kind of man that I think we can joyfully surrender our lives to. Because he joyfully laid down his life for ours, I think we can joyfully lay down our life for his. So we're going to transition into a, a time of communion here in just a second. And that's, that's the reality that I want us to focus in on as we partake of the bread and the cup is that Christ's incarnation, especially in this time of Advent, culminates with him not only willingly but joyfully laying down his life for us to proclaim a new kingdom, a new reality, and a new way of life. So as you come up, if you're a believer this morning to partake in this, I want you to take the bread in the cup and I really want you just to contemplate, contemplate Do I know Jesus in this way and do I joyfully submit to him as king? Do I trust that he's greater? Do I trust that he's truthful? Do I trust that he loves me? And take that bread and that cup as a tangible reminder of how much he loves us. So there will be two stations to either side as we do this. Again, if you're a believer, please come and take. If you're not, I ask that you just pause. This isn't for you right now. I hope that it is one day. But you can also contemplate these things where you are. You can contemplate if you know Christ in this way. You can contemplate his greatness, his truthfulness, and his love for you this morning as well. You are not a bystander. You're an active participant even in this moment if you're not partaking. I'm going to pray, the band's going to come up, and we'll we'll transition into uh, the rest of our worship and communion. Lord Jesus, God, I pray that you would give us that kind of joy. That in a season where we're going to sing songs about joy to the world and joy coming, that you would remind us that the ultimate joy is found in you and who you are. Lord, I, I, I pray this morning that we would carefully examine ourselves and we would ask if we are holding anything from you, if there is an agenda or a part of our lives that we are withholding because we can't joyfully surrender that and submit that to you. My prayer this morning is that if we, if we find that in ourselves, that we're not beaten to death by shame and guilt, but that we are wrapped in your loving arms and reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness, of your truthfulness of your love for us. And that is your kindness that will lead us to repentance. And it is your love that will call us to joyful submission to your new kingdom, your new reality, and your new way of life.
0: It's in your name we pray.